All right, good morning. We're ready to get started. So let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word, and then we will dive in. Father, we come before you as needy children. We are hungry for your word this morning. We want to know what you have for us. We look forward to um, discussing these chapters in Mark and learning more about Jesus, learning more about our own hearts, and we ask that you would just uh, be working through your spirit, using your word to transform us to be like your son. We ask all of this, that you would be glorified here today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are looking today at uh, Mark chapters 6 through 10. Had a little bit more of introductory material that I wanted to cover um, that I didn't take the time for last week, so I wanted to hit it this week. Some of it we've talked about like obliquely, you know, kind of in passing, um, so we won't spend a ton of time on this, uh, but I did want to uh, point out a few things. The first, of, first thing is, what is the audience that Mark is writing to? So. We learned in studying Matthew that Matthew was writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, and we saw a number of ways that he did that, in particular using a lot of Old Testament scripture, which would have really resonated with his Jewish audience. So in, we, we have this conclusion for the supposition that Mark is writing to Roman believers, to Gentiles, not to Jewish, Jewish people necessarily or primarily. So how do we get to that? Well, they didn't have Old Testament scriptures, so that's not something that we're taking into account. But here's a number of items that, um, this comes from the MacArthur Study Bible, by the way, so these aren't things that I invented, um, that are pointed to in reaching this conclusion. It's also thought that Mark was actually writing physically from the city of Rome. And the reason that um, commentators arrive at that conclusion is because of some of the passages we looked at last week, where at the end of Peter's life, at the end of Paul's life, they both mention Mark. And in those instances, we know from other sources that each of them were in Rome at the end of their lives. So they were writing those things near the end of their lives. So we reached the conclusion, connecting the dots, that they were in Rome. Therefore, he must have been in Rome as well. So just running through some of these characteristics that lead us to believe that um, Roman believers are in mind is, you know, first of all, there's a usage of Aramaic, Aramaic terms, but then Mark translates them for his audience. And so um, we will see one of those in chapter 5, verse 41. Um, I guess we saw that last week where Jesus raised the little, the little girl from the dead, and he said, Talitha... Kumai, and then he says, which means, little girl arise. And so he translates that for the audience and for us. He could have just said, little girl arise, is what Jesus said, but he wanted, for some reason, to use that Aramaic term. So there's a number of these things that happens. We won't go into the other examples. He uses some Latin expressions, some Latin words that are transliterated, these are harder for the English reader to see, but words like centurion are based on a Latin word, and so he is transliterating that into the Greek uh, that he is writing in. There's also an explanation of Jewish customs. We'll see one of those uh, this week in chapter 7. The Pharisees are criticizing the disciples for eating with unwashed hands, and so Mark explains what that was all about. He explains why that was a Jewish custom. 
In comparison to Matthew, there is an omission of some Jewish elements, um, such as the genealogies. We see those predominantly in Mark and Luke, and those don't really fit into um, Mark's scheme, what he's trying to accomplish, and so he omits that. There's also fewer citations or references to the Old Testament, and you would expect this. If, you know, comparing a Jewish audience to a Roman audience, the Jewish scriptures would not have been as persuasive to a Roman audience as they would have to the Jews, and so it's logical that we would see fewer references. And then one very, um, very particular, singular reference, and that is to Simon the Cyrene. This is the man who carries Jesus' cross for him at the end of his life. This is in chapter 15, verse 21. And in that verse, he is identified as the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's like, wow, we're given a lot of information about this guy who's a really, really minor character in the story. But then when we look at Paul's writing to the, to the Romans at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 16, 13, he mentions Rufus as being a member of the church at Rome. Now, in order to connect those dots, we have to make an assumption that it's the same Rufus. So we don't know that. We don't know if this is a common name or if this is fairly unique or if this is why Mark mentions this specifically because he wanted his Roman-believing audience to say, hey, there's a guy in your church whose dad was there, so you can talk to him about this and see that it was really true. So there's a few of these that you gotta connect some dots, but it, it really gives us a pretty good view that the audience was intended to be Roman believers. Now, two things I think important from that. One is the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles also. It's for the whole world, it's for all of us. Another is the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers too. We need the gospel. We need to know the truth about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. We need that as part of our daily lives. This is why we have communion, so that we can remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus paid a high price for us to be saved, to be reconciled from God, that he bore the wrath that was intended for us. He took that, and he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he rose again. Those are foundational truths that is the bedrock of the Christian life. The gospel is for believers. The Roman believers were about to face persecution. They needed the truth of the gospel to anchor them when the storms of persecution began to blow. And that really affects some of Mark's themes. We see a theme in, in your notes, I, in the last week I put the, the theme is Jesus the servant king. We see the fact that he is um, shown as the king primarily through the authority that he demonstrates throughout the book. Very similar to Matthew. It's not like this is unique to Mark in this book. Also in the, the message, also similar to Matthew, he's preaching the message of the kingdom. And then we see Mark has an emphasis on people's reactions. Reactions to the king. How do you react to the king? Do you bow before him or do you turn away and reject him? And some recognized him and some didn't. We'll talk more about that a little later. We also see the servant theme throughout Mark. And this is done through a variety of, variety of ways. One is a focus on deeds, things that he did. 
So we see lots and lots of miracles recorded. So many miracles that I found myself getting like mixed up. Like he, he cast out demons from so many people. It's like, was it this guy or that guy? You know, he healed so many blind men. So, so it's like, wow, there's a lot of like blind people going around here. And I think, well, you know what? I would be considered blind back in the first century, I think, because of the way I see, you know, I need a significant prescription. And I'm very thankful for that. But there was a lot of blind people that he healed. There was a lot of deaf people. There was lots of demon activity that we see. A focus on the deeds. Why is that? Because servants work. Servants do things. They don't spend a lot of time talking. They do things. And so Mark de-emphasizes what Jesus said. Got to be careful here a little bit. He de-emphasizes it by just omitting these long sermons, the long discourses, with a couple of small exceptions. You compare what Matthew did. Matthew wanted us to hear those sermons. He includes the Sermon on the Mount. Mark, Mark doesn't. So he omits long discourses in creating this focus. So the fo- focus is really on service and sacrifice. This is what servants do. Servants wait on other people. They follow their commands. They are there for the benefit of someone else, not for their own. And that involves personal sacrifice. And the sacrifice of Jesus is an important aspect of him being a servant. We also see the servant theme through um, the way Mark begins the book. We saw that last week, how he just jumps in with Jesus like right on the cusp of public ministry. So all of these things point to the servant theme The uh, ESV study Bible had a nice little summary and said the ultimate purpose and theme of Mark is to present and defend Jesus' universal call to discipleship. Again, writing to believers, he's calling us to discipleship. He does that through his example. He calls us to discipleship because he has the authority as a king and he's going to show you what it looks like as a servant. This book is for us. One other aspect, and just doing some reading, I forget which commentator said this. Uh, he, he said, the Gospel of Mark is the one that children should read first. And I thought, that is really perceptive. Because of all the focus on the things that Jesus did, rather than having kids get lost in these long sermons, it's just like, focus on the miracles. Focus on what Jesus did. I thought that was great advice. All right, we talked a little bit about key words. I didn't, I didn't remember if I told you how many times these things were mentioned, so I just wanted to put this on a slide. We're not going to spend any more time on it. Um, and then the key verse is Matthew 10:45, and if we manage our time well, we will come to that at the end of the class today. But this, fo- this, this shows this service aspect. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come so that everyone would wait on him, but he came. He came. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. And where did he go to? He came to earth. And he came here not so that he could sit around and eat bonbons, not so that other people could fan him when he was hot. I mean, all those things that you would expect a king to participate in or do, but he came to serve. The word serve here is the diakonos word so it's the serve like a deacon it is serve like what the people that I'm serving need is more important than what I am doing Jesus came because what we needed was more important than what he was going through 
And, why, and how did he fulfill that, ultimately, to give his life a ransom for many? All right, so that's the whirlwind tour of the rest of the introductory material. So we'll move quickly now to our discussion questions. So we're going to start with a little bit of a softball. In chapter 6, we say in verse 7, we see Jesus sending out disciples. How many disciples did Jesus send out? Twelve. All right, good. All right, we got one down. All right, in verse 8, what were they to take with them? There's a long list of what he said not to take, but what did he say to take? Staff and one tunic, yes. So what's that all about? Just bare necessities, yeah, yeah. So he's saying to them, travel light. Don't like take a suitcase. This is, you're just gonna be like moving and you're going to be going, and you're going to be preaching wherever you go. And what was the message that the disciples, disciples preached? R- repentance. Repentance. So this is the same message that we saw John the Baptist preach, and we saw that Jesus preached, and now the disciples go and preach this. So are we getting the picture? Repentance is important. Repentance is what people need to do. They need to face their sin and turn away from it. All right. So dropping down to verse 30, after the disciples return from this missionary trip, Jesus and the disciples head out on a retreat. Let's take a look at verse 30. See why I say that. The the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. The disciples were worn out. They had been out doing all this ministry and when they came back, like the house is full and it's like there's so much activity, they can't even take time to have a meal. And so... Jesus, as a good leader, recognizes that there's a need in his followers. And he says, come on, let's get away. We're going we're gonna to go to a desolate place and we'll get some rest. But the early social media network spies them and a crowd follows them on the shore. Evidently, they didn't go out into the middle of the lake because they got in a boat and they're starting to go to the other side. But they can see them from, the, the crowd can see them from the shore and the crowd is like kind of chasing them. Like, like, come on, let's go to where, let's find out wherever he's going to land. So Jesus has attracted a crowd, and the crowd is chasing him down. And when they arrive at the spot they were going to, verse 34, he went ashore, and he saw a great crowd. And I need a new slide. And what was the emotion that Jesus displayed in verse 34 when he saw the crowds? Compassion. Yes, yeah, compassion. So a little different from the emotion that we saw last week, right? What was the emotion we saw last week? you remember that? It's two, actually. Anger and grief, yes. Yeah, and that was directed at, do you remember the Pharisees, right? And so now we see this emotion of compassion is directed at the crowds, the crowds who had needs. Very different approach. Why did he feel that way? Why, why was this compassion generated based on what the text says to us? Joanne. 
Yeah, that's right. So they were like sheep without a shepherd. How would we say that in our words today? Lost? Because they were without a leader. They were leaderless. And so they're just wandering around. They don't, they don't have anything to anchor them to where they need to go. No one to direct them, to, to guide them, to feed them, to protect them. And so how does he react in this verse? Brenda. He started to teach them. And so this is what the leader does. The leader sees that there is a need. They don't know the direction that they should go. So I'm going to teach them the direction that they should go. He served them by helping them learn, by being a shepherd. And he did it on his day off. How about that? Hmm. I think the disciples may have been a little frustrated by this. Because they thought they were going to get a day off. And they didn't get a day off. They had a lot of work to do. There was a lot of people to minister to. His disciples needed their batteries recharged. I'm sure Jesus did too. But there was ministry to do and people that needed him. And so he met that need. How can we apply these verses personally? By having compassion on others, right? When we see people that have a need for Jesus, our reaction shouldn't be anger or frustration or impatience. It should be compassion. When we see people that talk in ways that we say, we would say, that doesn't line up with scripture, that's sinful. We should have a reaction that says, they're talking that way because they have sinful hearts. Because they don't know Jesus. Because if they knew Jesus, they wouldn't talk that way. Their biggest need is not to correct their political view. It's to correct their heart. That they need to repent. They need to accept Jesus as their Savior and meet him and have their sins forgiven. We need the compassion of Jesus with the people that we deal with on a daily basis. With our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with people that we run into. All right, dropping down to verse 47, we see another incident on the Sea of Galilee, and this time Jesus is not in the boat when they start out. The disciples are on their own. And in this miracle, we see that when Jesus gets into the boat, the sea stops. The wind stops. The sea is calm. It doesn't tell us that he spoke to the wind and the waves like he did in the previous example. But let's, let's read verses 51 and 52. Can someone read those for us? Jeff, thanks. All right, thank you. So this wasn't one of the discussion questions. This is one I just added. But why are the disciples astounded? It says in verse 52, for, giving us a reason, they did not understand. Well, what was it they didn't understand? about the loaves. So what does that mean? They didn't understand the significance of the miracle. And what was the significance of the miracle? Jesus is the creator. Here he is creating food. He's creating more than enough for everyone to eat. He's taking a little and he's making it a lot. There was more left over than when he started. It's just astounding. 
and yet for some reason things are not completely clicking in the disciples' minds and saying, this is more than just a prophet. This is more than John the Baptist. This is more than somebody who God just lets work incredible miracles. They are not understanding who Jesus is. Not completely. They have a good start on that. But the reason for all of this, the reason they didn't understand, is that their hearts were hardened. Whoa, we're talking about the disciples here. We're not like talking about the Pharisees. The disciples, the people closest to Jesus, had hard hearts. Hearts trapped in steel vaults. Hearts that are impenetrable. Why did that happen? How did that happen? They had just seen two incredible miracles, this incredible creation of food and the calming of the sea. They had seen lots of miracles before. They had heard lots of incredible teaching. They had been exposed to more truth than most people will ever be exposed to in their lifetime. And yet they had hard hearts. Ooh, this is kind of scary. This is like, well, if they had hard hearts, who can possibly have a soft heart? If that's the the difference, if that's the opposite. They had just got back from preaching repentance. And we know from other verses that in their preaching ministry, they actually did incredible miracles themselves. So they had experienced God's power personally, and yet still they had hard hearts. They had been with Jesus, and yet their hearts were hard. Wow, this is troublesome. Well, we know from Acts that the Holy Spirit started to indwell people at the beginning of the church age in Acts 2. So no. So they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But where, where, I like where you're going with this because it's like, what is, the, what, is the soul, what is the source of the problem? The source of the problem is that God has not done a complete work to open their eyes, to soften their hearts. No amount of miracles being seen is enough to create new life. The Pharisees at the end of Jesus' life will say, show us a sign. Come down from the cross. Those things by themselves are not going to convince anyone if they have rejected the truth if God has not opened their eyes. Softening a heart is a work of God. That is a miracle in and of itself. And that's what we all need. They didn't understand what was going on. So this starts to introduce a little bit of a sub-theme in, in Mark, and that is these hard hearts. The disciples are shown to have hard hearts even after seeing astounding miracles. In chapter 7, verse 6, in that uh, discussion about the washing of hands, we see that the Pharisees have hearts that are far from God. It doesn't say they have hard hearts, but this is very similar. In chapter 8, verses 17, after the disciples see the 4,000 fed, Jesus asks the question, are your hearts hard? So we see him back to the disciples. In chapter 9, verses 19, this is where the deaf and mute demon-possessed boy couldn't be um, exercised by the disciples. And Jesus says to the crowd, you're a faithless generation. They didn't have faith. 
doesn't say hard hearts, but it's similar. So we see a, a, a development here. And then 10.5, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus about, you know, whether divorce is okay. And Jesus starts to explore how that happened. And Jesus says, because that your fathers had hard hearts, they had hard hearts about marriage. And that's what generated Moses' permission for divorce. So what are the characteristics of a hard heart? Before I'll just explain a little bit more before we get to that question. We see, if, if you could go back to verse 52 in chapter 6, there is a linkage between the word understand and the word hard hearts. If you remember, the word understand was important in the parable of the soils. The difference with the good soil to all the others is that there was an understanding. Understanding is not intellectual acknowledgement. It is not just mental apprehension, but it is a condition of the heart where the concept is grasped by faith. An important linkage between faith and understanding. A hard heart fails to see God at work. It refuses to give God credit for what he does. See that particularly in the disciples. A hard heart is astounded when God intervenes. We see that right here in this instance in chapter 6. Divine intervention is surprising. Well, why should it be surprising? At this point in the disciples' lives, you know, it's easy for me to criticize. We say, nothing should surprise you guys. With what you've seen Jesus do? But they are continually surprised. And the crowd is continually surprised. Why? Because they can't fathom how incredible God is. And they haven't put together that Jesus is God. It lacks eyes of faith to see who Jesus is. All right, we need to move on. Let's look a little more closely at the, at the Pharisees and the unwashed hands incident in chapter 7. What does Jesus call the Pharisees in verse 6? Hypocrites. It's like his favorite title for them. He minces no words with the Pharisees. Who does he quote in support of this characterization? Isaiah. Yep, good. And what are the two problems with people that Isaiah identifies? Joanne, yeah. Right, good. Hearts are far from God, and that has led them to teach what they think as being commandments of God. I've heard something over here. There's more. Same thing. Okay, thank you. All right, so then what is the Pharisees' fundamental problem? So this, is, this requires a little thinking. It's not like straight out of the text. Yeah, Will. They don't really believe what they teach. Hmm, interesting. They don't believe what they teach. Okay. Let's explore that a little bit more. So if they don't believe what they teach, why do they teach it? Right. They're falling in love with what they taught. So what does that show us about their heart 
like Joanne mentioned, which is right from verse 6, their heart is far from me, which if their heart is far from God, what does it mean where their heart is? What's the implication? Self-centered? Okay, okay. Yep, yep. So the heart is far from God, but it's close to self. So who, who are these people's gods? <laughs> They're themselves. That's what we see. Fundamentally, they didn't love God with all their heart. They weren't following the first commandment. They loved themselves more than they loved God. So after Jesus points out their hypocrisy, Jesus calls the crowd to him and he starts to teach them in verse 14. And you'll see this key word of understand again um, in verses 14 and 18. The people don't understand because they're blind to the truth. So in verses 14 through 23, Jesus expounds on the problem of the Pharisees when he says in verse 15 that the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What is he talking about? Okay, so man's heart is desperately wicked. I think something over here. The things that we do, that people see, things that are, are things that happen outside the body. That isn't the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that our heart is what's generating those things. The things that come out of our mouth are outside of the body. But that is not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that our heart is generating that. So that's what he's talking about. So how could we summarize this teaching? We've got a heart issue. That's right. We have a heart issue. The, the fundamental problem of sin is that we have a sinful heart. So how can we use this teaching about the Pharisees as we pray devotionally? help guard our hearts to prevent us from being hypocrites. I mean, none of us want to be hypocrites, right? I mean, we don't think of ourselves in those terms, but certainly a good thing that we could be praying. In chapter 8, we see another crowd feeding. Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000 men plus women and children. And in verses 1 through 10, we see this um, example happen. So this question is really just an exercise comparing the two, um, the two big events. There are some, there are some um, liberal scholars who would say, you know, that this is a mistake, that, this, you know, that there was just one, one big feeding and, you know, Mark got it wrong. Well, well, there's lots of similarities, but there's lots of differences. So what are some similarities, first of all? Large groups of people. Yep, okay, same kind of substance that is being fed. Brenda? There's always leftovers. God always provided more than what was needed. Isn't that amazing? How about differences? Okay. Right, so just differences in timing and place. Yep, good. 
There's some small details that are different too. Can we pick up on those? John. Okay. Yeah, good. Okay. Thank you. 5,000 versus 4,000 and a difference in the grouping. I'm sorry? They were in the desert. Okay. Desolate place. No food there. Right. Okay. Numbers of fish, numbers of bread, those are different. The numbers of leftovers are different, but as was already said, there's more left over than when they started. So let's move to the next question, which deals with Jesus' famous question to Peter, who do men say that I am? So how does Peter's answer, you are the Christ? Sorry, I just answered the question. All right, I'm glad we got that one out of the way. That was, that was the hard question, right? Let's move to number two. How does Peter respond to Jesus' teaching about his upcoming suffering in verse 32? So after you had this incredible declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, Jesus starts to tell them that he's going to suffer. And Peter, I want to make sure I don't answer it again. How does Peter respond? I almost did it. Oof. Again. How does Peter respond? He rebukes, he rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine like how much like personal self-confidence and unawareness does it take to rebuke Jesus Christ? Again, it's so easy for me to be critical. I, I, I should back off. All right, third question. Assuming Peter was Mark's source of information, assume that's true, how does the inclusion of these two interactions affect the credibility of Mark's account? Lisa. Hmm. Yeah, good. And how does the transparency affect the credibility? You're, you're on the right track. Transparency helps or hurts? It helps. So often we think about if I'm a transparent person, it's gonna, it's gonna you know, people are gonna think poorly of me. That's not the case. Here, the, the credibility is built because Scripture gives us both sides. They give us the great stuff and they give us the bad stuff. And they say, this is what happened, and that builds the credibility. Now, this account is like the climax of the book. When, when, <laughs> this is what Mark's driving at. He's been building this whole case that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right where he started in verse 1. And Peter finally says it. You are the Christ. What had everybody else been saying? Well, in, in the verses leading up to it, it says, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah or you're a prophet. Who else said that, by the way? We skipped this section of verses, but there was somebody else that said this, like, exact thing. It was, it was Herod, so I don't want to hide the ball too long. So Herod's account when he was talking about John the Baptist, and, John, and Herod concluded from what all these people were saying that it was John the Baptist because of his own guilty conscience. But Peter nails it. And this is a climax, which is um, the, the, like the peak, and the story starts to change from here on. From here on, Jesus is headed straight to the cross. And the, the events 
build toward that. So there's like another climax of the cross, obviously. But this is the point where Mark has proven his point and now he is going in a different direction. And this is the first of four declarations that, uh, of, the, of the gospel message, that Jesus will die and rise again. Up until this point, who had Jesus been recognized by for who he really was? Well, demons. Who had he not been recognized by? The crowds, the disciples at some level, and religious leaders had rejected him. And so he has four predictions now in three chapters of his death and resurrection. The one in chapter 9, verse 9, is really just the resurrection only. That was after the transfiguration. So he is telling them repeatedly that this is going to happen. All right. We need to keep moving. In chapter 9, we have a question. So in chapter 6, verse 13, we know that the disciples successfully cast out demons and healed people. But in 9.18, they were unable to cast out a demon who possessed a boy. So what is Jesus' reactions about this event? So when you look at Jesus' reaction rather than other people's reaction to Jesus, how did Jesus react to the crowd and the scribes in verse 19? Faithless generation. Good. All right. How did he re react to the Father's request? Brenda. He had compassion. Right. Right. He had compassion. That wasn't his first reaction. The first reaction was what? Right, right, right. So that word if demonstrated that, that the father wasn't all in on whether Jesus could do this or not. And so he says, you know, what do you mean if? Just have faith that this can happen. But then he has compassion and he grants the request. In verse 29, what was the reaction to the disciples? Right. So they weren't doing this on their own. They needed God's power to do it, and they only could access God's power through prayer. I think this, I wish we could spend more time exploring this because this tells us some, a lot of different things. But the main point here is prayer is really important when we're doing God's work. We are completely dependent people. We are dependent on God to work, and so we need to be talking to him and that may be a prayer like the Father, which said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah, Papa. Yes. Right, right. He had the power to do this. This is another example of the authority of Jesus. You know, just to kind of like backfill that a little bit. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out. So what does that tell us about demons? There's more than one kind, which they have different <laughs> levels of power, evidently. Some are more powerful than others. But all are subject to the power of King Jesus. That's awesome. I love that. All right.
We'll leave this last question for you to consider on your own. Out of these three groups of people, who do you identify with the most? All right, second set of questions in chapter 9. In verses 33 through 35, Jesus teaches the disciples about greatness and what event prompted this teaching. What was the event? It was after that, after the transfiguration. Joanne? Right, they were arguing about who's the greatest, which did happen after the transfiguration. But that's the specific thing that triggers it. Okay, so then, who did Jesus say would be the greatest? The least. The one who's last. The one who serves. His teaching reinforces that servant king theme. How should this affect the way that we interact with our brothers and sisters in the church? need to put others before ourselves. This is what we are called to. We are called to serve the Lord. We're called to serve one another. We have three minutes to do chapter 10. I am so sorry. This chapter 10 is long and it's really good. But let's do these questions. Verses 17 through 22 in chapter 10. This is the rich young ruler passage. Jesus encounters him. And although this man appears to have it all, he knows he's missing something. At the end of verse 21, what does Jesus say that he lacked? Craig. That's right. He lacked the commitment to follow Christ. What is the words that Jesus uses? He's lacking treasure in heaven. And the reason he's lacking treasure in heaven is because he didn't have the commitment to follow Christ because he was pursuing money himself rather than pursuing God himself. Another wonderful encounter for us to look at. Then in verse 51, what is the question, the specific question that Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus? What do you want me to do for you? Now, does that strike you odd? Why is that odd? Jesus knows. Yeah, why else? So, oh yeah, we know he's blind. He wants to see. Now, doesn't every blind man want to see? What else would he want? Well, maybe he wanted a drink of water. We, Jesus, why does Jesus ask this question? He wants the man to ask, yes. He wants to elicit this title. Yes. Yeah, that, this is like, this is Jesus' go-to diagnostic question in this chapter. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Can we personalize that a little bit? What do you want? <laughs> what do you want? If Jesus asked you that same question, what would you say? Would your answer be, I want you. That's all I want. Or would it be, I want a new, new set of tires. <laughs> or I just want some rest. Nothing wrong with those things. But what do you want? 
He asked the blind man. And the blind man has been calling out what? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What is he saying? Really, I mean, like, unpack that. What is he saying? He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are God. You are the son of David, the one who was forecasted to come. I need you. I need you to solve my problem. No one else can. Isn't it ironic that they are approaching Jerusalem at this point? And the first person who points out who Jesus is, is a blind guy. No one else could see this. It's astounding. Why couldn't they see? Because their hearts were hard. That's why they couldn't see. So we'll leave off this week with this question of what do you want? What is it that you want? This is kind of the conclusion of the whole, the whole book, but we'll conclude with it today. Jesus is the servant king. He came to serve. He came to serve us by dying. And he's coming back to rule. The servant the first time, the king the second time. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich. I wish we had more time to unpack this more. We're so grateful for the truth that you've revealed to us. And I just pray that you would, you would motivate us as we ask ourselves, what do we want? What is on our hearts? That our hearts would be soft and pliable to you and that we would want you more than anything else. Not just say that, not be hypocrites like the Pharisees, but actually really, truly want that. And if that's not what we want, Father, work in us to change our hearts. Pry open those hard hearts. Make them soft. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is and what he's done and the incredible miracle of salvation that he's worked in our hearts to reconcile us to you. We thank you for that. As we just prepare our hearts now to worship, we ask that you would make yourself known to us through your word in our worship. We ask it for your glory and our good. In Christ's name.